Africville, Amber Valley, Little Burgundy, Hogan's Alley. You may not be familiar with this, or you may be familiar with them, but they do have something in common. These is part of the Canadian history that a lot of us don't tell. These are settlements and black neighborhoods that been hundreds of years and hundreds of people lived in Canada. From the east to the west, black people settled from Africa and the United States in places like North and East Preston, Cherrybrook, and just to name many others. Today, we're going to go to a journey of what these neighborhoods were about. Some are still standing, some have been erased, but the only thing we want is never forget that this is part of our history, which is Canadian history. Now let's start the show. What's up and welcome to another episode of Black in the Maritimes. I'm Fidel and today we're going to talk about black neighborhoods in Canada. Now we're going to analyze a couple of clips from history archives, uh, reports by CBC, Canada Post, CTV, the Canada History, and we're going to explore the history of these black neighborhoods. Uh, we're going to go for Montreal, Little Burgundy, New Brunswick, Willow Grove, Amber Valley in Edmonton, we're also going to talk about North and East Preston and Cherrybrook in Nova Scotia. And we're going to end up with Hogan's Alley in British Columbia. A lot of these neighborhoods, some are still standing. Some have been erased by some were segregated and they really went through a lot. So we're going to go and actually learn about the history of all of these predominantly black neighborhoods. And we're going to start with Willow Grove and Amber Valley. Now, this was a mini doc that was done by Canada Post commemorating the stamp of Black Settlers in Canada for Black History Month. So there's predominantly very influential people of New Brunswick, uh, which shout out to them, uh, and also people of uh, Edmonton and Saskatchewan. So we're going to hear this clip and then we're going to explain it and go to parts of it. So let's hear it. They just wanted freedom and a place whereby they could live and have a place to call their own. The history of black migration from the U.S. to Canada is a story of perseverance. It's about struggle, courage, and triumphs. It's about the drive to build a better life. The founding of Willow Grove and Amber Valley are two of those stories. Willow Grove is one of the most beautiful places that nobody knows about. You know, nobody really understands the fact that Willow Grove was a, a community that uh, loyalists settled there. In 1815, 371 black refugee loyalists arrived in New Brunswick aboard the HMS Regulus. The formerly enslaved Americans had been offered their freedom and land in exchange for supporting the British in the War of 1812. But their journey to a better life proved an uphill battle, starting with getting the land they had been promised. The land was uh, surveyed out in 50-acre lots. The 
black refugees were supposed to pay for the survey, which was not something that others had to do. And they were only given licenses of occupation. They weren't given the grants outright. Uh, most white grantees were given uh, between 100 and 200 acres uh, per grant. So the land itself was, was, not, um, was not really enough to maintain a farm. And so the black loyalists were then uh, really required to, to head into the city to find work. The new Canadians fought for their rights and persevered to build Willow Grove. But at least they got a foothold on Willow Grove and did their very best to be able to develop a community. A strong group of people struggled and the rest of the people that came along after the doors had already been opened. The, the communities had already been built by people who hung on and hung on and hung on until they too became successful. Well, Amber Valley was the biggest black settlement in Western Canada. They said at one time there was up to 300 people black people who lived in Amber Valley. The history of Amber Valley dates back to around 1910. While the oppressive Jim Crow laws took hold in the American South, Canada was putting the call out for pioneers to settle land in the last best West. In pursuit of a better life, 30 black families from mostly Oklahoma struck out for Northern Alberta. The biggest challenge was clearing land they had to do that even to, for their, uh, to build a home. But they had to do that land clearing by hand. There, were no, there was no machinery. And the neighbors all helped one another. You know, when one got their 10 acres cleared, then they went and helped the other one clear his 10 acres. And that way they were able to file for the court of section. The determination those people had, to my way of thinking, it, it, it's unreal. And it was so doggone cold in the winters. But yet he, they survived. Over time, the Amber Valley community flourished. And while residents still experienced some discrimination, there are stories of how they were welcomed. A lot of the white communities had to pass through Pine Creek, Amber Valley, in order to get to their area. But when it was cold in the winter, they opened their houses up to let them warm up, or some of them even overnighted so they could have the horses fed and whatnot. They were welcome, and they welcomed everybody into their homes. Eventually, young people moved to the cities to find greater opportunities. The numbers of people that went on to make incredible contributions to life in the province of Alberta, in the, the country that we now call Canada, and in the world is really astonishing. Um, that I think is really significant because it speaks to the determination, the perseverance, the incredible resilience of the people. Canada Post is honored to pay tribute to these two historic settlements and the people who built them. That stamp represents ordinary people back in that timeline. 
and it's just one of the biggest blessings that ever happened. I just want to thank and honor every single person who has worked hard to keep those archives, to store them in their homes, to make sure they're safe and to preserve them for future generations. I'm just very, very grateful to have Canada as my home. Now, one of the voices that you hear there is from a very, very prominent New Brunswicker. Uh, he's the co-founding member of the New Brunswick Black History Society, uh, Mr. Ralph Thomas. Shout out to him. Uh, you know, a lot of the interviews and a lot of the history that we learn is by our elders. Um, Mr. Thomas is one of them, and he has a lot of knowledge about the black history of New Brunswick. Uh, we have an episode which uh, Mary Louise McCarthy, uh, she's also a woman that has a lot of knowledge about New Brunswick Black history, that she talks about Willow Grove. And part of her family actually was in Willow Grove, which is, uh, it's amazing that there's still people in New Brunswick that they're settlers, they're descendants of these settlers. So this is uh, something that I had to research and I talked to these people and they tell me, the history from the 1800s to the 1900s to the present day and how oppression and certain things still haven't changed, but also that a lot of influence for the Black people was the military. The military was a way out for Black people to go and, and be decent and have, you know, a decent living and get some money uh, to move out of the countryside because it was countryside and they moved to places like Toronto and they moved to places like Edmonton, Vancouver. Uh, so, but some of them did stay in places like St. John and Fredericton. Uh, so check out that episode with, um, Miss Mary Louise McCarthy. Uh, you should see her and she's, uh, if you Google her, you see a lot of her interviews in CBC and things like that. But definitely a lot of our history comes from our elders and we need to preserve that. That's something that I, I value myself a lot. So one of the things that you're going to see that is common among this uh, neighborhoods or settlements was segregation, racism, and systematic oppression. Uh, a lot of these people didn't have clean water, didn't have paved roads. If well, in those years, nobody had paper. When it started, they didn't have it. Uh, a lot of these places were either gentrified or they just took them away. They did highways. Uh, they bulldozed everything and put people in different places that they didn't even belong. And this is one of the stories that we're going to follow, which is the story of Africa Bill. Now, if you go to YouTube, there's tons of documentaries uh, of Africa Bill. Uh, there is a documentary called Return to Africa Bill. Uh, I think the Canadian Film Society has tons of documentaries. Uh, there are tons of documentations. In fact, there are books about it that you can get on your public library. There's a podcast made by some people in Nova Scotia uh, that I think is like around eight episodes around Africa Bill. So there's a lot of documentation that you can go and get. But uh, it's truly... Uh, sad story, but it's also a story about resiliency, uh, and it's a maritime story. So we're going to hear a clip. Uh, this is from the Canadian History Archives, and this is about Africa Bill. And we're also going to put another one uh, that it's 
to the people of Africville speaking. This is by the CBC over the years. So let's hear and then we're going to analyze it. Where the pavement ended, Africville began. There have been black people in Halifax as long as there's been a Halifax. They helped build the city. Formerly enslaved people and free black men and women. Maroons. Together, they dug out its roads and raised its roof beams. Facing racism in town, black people settled at the city limits. They built homes and started families. They set up their own school and other services the city refused to provide. They built the Seaview United Baptist Church the beating heart of the community. Despite paying city taxes, Africvillians had no running water, electricity, paved roads, or sewers. Instead, the city built factories, sewage pits, and a prison nearby, then labeled the village a slum. In 1962, Halifax City Council voted to demolish Africville, taking its valuable land for industrial development. The bulldozers arrived, as Africville lay sleeping. By 1970, the neighborhood was destroyed and its residents forcibly relocated to other Halifax neighborhoods. But Africville was home to the people who lived there and they would not be forgotten. Once a year, we venture out to Africville for a reunion. Set up your tent, set up your camp, or throw a blanket on the grass. The children are playing, people are laughing and hugging, reminiscing about the old days. But for three days, you have your community back. You see degeneration in the north end of Halifax the Negro slum called Africville, whose 500 souls with their privies and wells cling to a rocky, sewerless hillside overlooking Bedford Basin. If things are this bad, why don't you move? I, I, you know, move I know this is your... where? Well, where would you go? Move to Bowie. Services end 100 yards from Africville. The Negro here has no garbage pickup, no running water, no sewage service, no paved roads, no public transportation. He pays taxes. But there is a pride here. It's a place where you can lick and soothe your wounds. The Negroes have been told that they must leave by 1967 when the bulldozers come in. I, I've been here so long, you know, it doesn't make any difference to me. But is the young people, they got their life to live. But still, I, I love my home. We were shipped out on the back of the city dump trucks. It's come to be known as Seaview Park. This is where the settlement of Africville once stood. Each summer, the Africville Genealogical Society holds a reunion. I had an inherent ownership of that land. This is a bittersweet day. Today, the Minister of Canadian Heritage tried to right the wrong many black Nova Scotians feel by designating this park a federal heritage site, meaning it's protected from development. And as the fabric has been torn apart, so the fabric can be mended. 
Still, some say a plaque can't make up for the destruction of an entire community. We don't want a plaque. We want our compensation package. We want our home for our home. We want our royalties. Last year, an official apology was given on behalf of the city of Halifax. With that, the name Africville was restored and $3 million in compensation given to rebuild the church. Well, the reconstruction of the church is part of the way back towards saying that Africville was not a mistake. Africville was a wonderful community. Now, one of the things about Africville is that there was a resistance. Some people didn't want to move, but they had no other choice. And it was around 1968 that was the last person in Africville. And right now, it's a memorial site. Uh, there's nothing in there, but they built a bridge. Uh, but the site, uh, part of the site of Africville is now a historical landmark. So nothing can be built there other than the bridge that they kicked everybody out. Now, one of the things that it's, uh, you know, it's a bit sad is that these people lived there and they had no facilities and they have asked, been asking still for reparations still this day uh, by the city of Halifax, by the government of Nova Scotia or by the federal government. And they still haven't got no reparations for this because they were basically thrown out and, you know, lived in an other black neighborhood, but they still thrived. They still survived. They were resilient and they were able to make uh, as little as they had. They were able to make a lot of it. So shout out to those descendants and people that are still alive to this day that lived in Africville. And again, there is a lot of documentary. I think I would recommend Return to Africville. It's definitely an eye opener of the racism and oppression that these people have gone through. And again, Africville was not the only black settlement in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Uh, there was North Preston, East Preston, and Cherrybrook. Now, a lot of the people from Africville did move to those three places. Some did move to Halifax, to the city, uh, again. But these were also settlements that black people saw as long as Canada has been Canada, which is uh, around 150, 253 years. Uh, black settlers were in Nova Scotia. It, Nova Scotia, especially Halifax, is the oldest black population existing in the country. And these people are still there. Uh, there's thousands of them now, and they are still thriving. And we're going to hear a clip from the CBC about these three uh, predominantly black neighborhoods or predominantly black settlements in Nova Scotia that are still there and the people that are there and how they try to make sure that the history lives and also their community survives. So let's hear it. It's a celebration that has quite literally been centuries in the making. It's time that we need to celebrate. A homecoming attracting people from around the world to a small handful of neighboring communities dotted with descendants of African slaves who can trace their roots in this province back to the 1600s. I like to say history starts um, as far back as West Africa for those of us in North Preston. Many of their ancestors escaped slavery and came to what was scrubland, barren and rocky. Who could survive? They did, building a community that's now 5,000 strong. So Nova Scotia uh, can be known as the birthplace of black culture and heritage in Canada, with some of the oldest and largest black communities uh, here in this province. 
those communities uh, you know, are generations old. Shaped by adversity, over the generations they schooled their children, fielded fine sports teams, and somehow made do. And through it all, the beat of the Baptist Church, the heart of their communities. It sort of paints a picture that despite the struggles, despite the adversity, uh, we have faith to move forward. And I think that it's an example for all of the diverse cultures that are here in this country that we still can look at today and say that, you know, it's a remarkable uh, feat to be able to take a bad situation and make it a positive situation. A community that has had to endure poverty and prejudice on this day celebrating its successes, not its shortcomings. Showing off the culture, history and achievements, reminding people about all that makes it unique. The fact that we have survived all those many years and the fact that we thought that we were very poor but we were rich in many aspects. It's been said you can never go back home again once you leave. But for so many here, home has never left them. Tom Murphy, CBC News, Cherry Brook, Nova Scotia. Now, if you're from the Maritimes, which a lot of the listeners to this podcast are, you know that uh, North and East Preston and Sherrybrook, a lot of media always goes towards violence. Uh, I don't know why, because there's violence everywhere, but there is a bad stigma about those places. Uh, and usually it's by the mainstream media. Again, not trying to say that you are able to report crime, which is fine. I mean, crime is everywhere and it's something that people should know about. But I also want to make sure that Good stories, not only on Black History Month, but anytime that there's good stories happening in those neighborhoods, there's a lot of community leaders and a lot of people trying to change things. They're trying to make it better. And I think they deserve more attention. Also, the fact that right now, uh, all of these communities are represented by Black MLAs in Nova Scotia, which is unheard of. There's three Black MLAs and they represent those districts. And shout out to them. Uh, these people need to be there and we need to have more black politicians representing black communities, uh, especially in the places in Nova Scotia, which again, these are not the only ones. There are many more and we have interviewed a couple of people that have told us the story so you can check out the past episodes. Uh, so definitely something to think about. Now, we're going to jazz it up a little bit. Uh, this is the story of Little Burgundy, Montreal. Now, there is a famous person or many famous people from Little Burgundy. But one that we're going to focus on is Oscar Peterson. There is a documentary about him on Crave TV uh, that is a very, very interesting documentary about this predominantly very, very famous jazz artist. And recently, Canada has just released a gold coin with Oscar Peterson as well. I think there was a stamp from Canada Post as well. So uh, Oscar Peterson has been one of the people that have been able to represent uh, Canada worldwide. He's a world famous jazz artist. Uh, and again, there's a lot to say. This is a clip of the story of Little Burgundy done by Oscar Peterson's daughter. Uh, she's the one that Nat raised this and she narrates the history of Little Burgundy in Montreal. And she also narrates the life of Oscar Peterson. So definitely it's very, very interesting to listen. So let's hear it. I want to tell you a story about a special place known since the 1960s as Little Burgundy, Harlem North, right in the heart of Montreal. 
It was home to the best jazz in Canada and home to the country's well-known jazz prodigy, my father, Oscar Peterson. My name is Celine Peterson, and I want to tell you about the place where my father grew up. Can you hear the sounds of rhythms and melodies in the streets? Take a moment to reminisce with me. Throughout the 20th century, you could find a black community in Little Burgundy. Prohibition, the Great Depression, racism, unemployment, and poverty led men from the United States, the Caribbean, and parts of Canada to Montreal with the promise of work on the railroads. The labor market in Canada was segregated, and so this was the only steady, respected line of work available to black men in those days. They worked as red caps, cooks, and sleeping car porters. The nature of this work meant that men were far away from their families for over a week at a time. This was true of my grandfather, Oscar's dad, Daniel Peterson, who worked as a railway porter for the Canadian Pacific Railway. Little Burgundy was in an ideal location for railway workers like Daniel Peterson. It was tucked into southwest Montreal with the Canadian Pacific and Canadian National Railway stations close by. Many porters came back to Montreal from the United States with stories and music. Jazz, a music born out of the African-American experience, was all the rage. The popularity of jazz in Montreal arose out of prohibition in the United States. The city was free from the ban on alcohol and catered to folks looking for liquor, gambling, and nightlife. As a result, Montreal became one of the few jazz centers on the continent. This era later influenced many jazz greats, but perhaps the most famous of all was Oscar Peterson, who came from a musically gifted family and was encouraged by his father. Despite Oscar's talent, he reported sometimes experiencing discrimination when playing at traditionally white-only clubs. At times, he was openly heckled with racial slurs. In Montreal, there was no formal signage excluding people based on race like in the United States, but the day-to-day -day division was clear. In Canada, business owners had the legal right to serve whomever they wanted, a license to discriminate. All over Montreal, there were schools, churches, and jazz clubs where black people weren't welcome, but not in black organizations within Little Burgundy. This was home. Oscar's sister Daisy was his first piano teacher. Her legacy was in the budding jazz musicians she mentored and taught to strive for excellence, like her brother and others such as Oliver Jones and Joe Seeley. She was involved in the Union United Church and taught music at the Negro Community Center, the heart of the black community. The NCC served as a place for black people to come together for social, recreational, and educational activities. It played an important role for the black people within the Little Burgundy community by providing a safe space free of racial discrimination. Little Burgundy clubs catered to the popularity of jazz, but officials were not in favor of black people owning bars and made it difficult for them to obtain permits. Despite this, in its heyday during the 1930s to 1950s, the black-owned club Rockhead's Paradise hosted many American jazz legends and gave up-and-coming musicians like Oscar Peterson the opportunity to hone their skills. Although the height of the jazz era has long passed, the memory of this time is still alive in Little Burgundy, thanks to the legacy of musical greats like Oliver Jones, Daisy Sweeney, and Oscar Peterson. Whether it's a street name, park, or mural, you can still see the soul of Little Burgundy's glorious jazz history. And if you 
listen closely, you may even hear a tune. Something interesting about this is that the way that jobs were segregated in Canada, this was just not in Montreal. It was everywhere in Canada that jobs were segregated. Uh, there wasn't Jim Crow per se in Canada, but there was Jim Crow. Uh, the meaning is, is that, like she said, there wasn't like non-blacks, non-white, but uh, people could discriminate. They could discriminate. They There was rules that you need to abide on. Uh, again, we know the Viola... Desmond's story, and we have to check that she got to jail. She went to jail because of sitting in the uh, in the uh, backside, or not the backside. Sorry, uh, in the downside of the theater instead of at the top. Uh, and that was a rule that was implemented by movie theaters. Uh, there, it wasn't like there was signs or things like that, like Jim Crow. So that was the Jim Crow in Canada. Uh, it wasn't written, but it was told. Uh, to a certain way. And one series called The Porter, which is on CBC Gem, kind of details a little bit of that uh, because of the railways. It's about black people working in the railways of Canada, which is uh, what Mrs. Peterson uh, narrates in her story. So check that series out. It's pretty good. Also check Oscar Peterson's documentary on Crave TV if you have it. Uh, Gem uh, CBC Gem is free, so you can actually just download it on your app and you can see the porter, which is a, a bit of black history. Uh, you know, it's fictional, but non-fictional. So there's a lot of truth of what black people used to do, but I think the characters are not real. Uh, but definitely check that out. And again, I learned a lot from this. And there's other black neighborhoods that we forgot. There's Little Jamaica in Toronto. There's other neighborhoods in Hamilton as well. There's neighborhoods in different parts of Ontario, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and we're probably going to go back to those uh, in different episodes. But these were the ones that, you know, they intrigued me and there was a lot of history there. And again, there's there's a lot of them that we can go, we can do two parts of episodes, which we may do. Uh, but I want to end up with uh, Hogan's Alley, which is a lot of similarities to Little Burgundy, but it, uh, you know, it ceased to exist because of a highway or a bridge that they were trying to do. And they, they you know, they took the neighborhood out and there was a lot of music and jazz and there was a lot of uh, entertainment in this uh, neighborhood of British Columbia. People like Simon Davis Jr., Miles Davis played there because, again, these were black, this was where black people could play outside the United States. Uh Again, they they didn't have many places to play in North America, and though they can only play it in black bars, uh, so a lot of people played there. A lot of bars went there, and a lot of places that black people could eat were only there. And you know, it's uh, something that we should remember, and something that we should always have that segregation still exists. It it exists in different ways. If you go to indigenous reserves. That is segregation. Uh, you know, the reserves are segregated places. That's why they're away. They don't have clean water. They don't have a lot of things. So indigenous people are still being segregated in 2022. So let's not forget that. Uh, people of color, if they could, they would segregate. That The system has been made that way. Uh, and it's made for some. So definitely something that we cannot forget. 
Uh, we're going to go with the last clip, which is about Hogan Sally. This was by a documentary, Bade and Tell Us. Uh, it's a mini documentary. It's around 16 minutes. Uh, but we're going to play some, a, a, a brief, uh, some clips of it so you can get like the, 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 the main story of it. But I definitely did enjoy it. And if you want to watch it, you could go to YouTube and watch it. Uh, it's really, really cool. So shout out to everybody that's donating on Patreon and PayPal. Uh, please like and subscribe and tell us what you like, what you don't like. You can email us at uh, maritimes at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time. Hogan's Alley was a T-shaped alley. The north-south part ran parallel to Main Street and then it teed right where the Georgia Viaduct is. So from Maine all the way to Jackson Avenue between uh, Union Street on the north side and Pryor on the south. Hogan's Alley was not a black only neighborhood at all. It was where Italians in Vancouver traced their origins to as well. And it was right on the edge of Chinatown. But it did have a cluster of black businesses and institutions in the church that were significant to the black community and some residential areas. Well, one of the things that's interesting about the neighborhood is the establishment of the train stations. There were two. There was the Great Northern Station and the Canadian National Station. So Great Northern is American, and Canadian National obviously is transcontinental. And the favored um, crews on those trains for the sleeping cars and dining cars were black men. In the United States, it was traditional to hire black men as railway porters. You know, translated over into Canada, where there weren't as many black people, but it still became a tradition to hire uh, black men as porters. And it wasn't a menial job. That's one of the interesting things in black history, is that being a porter was something that you'd, you'd arrived. This was a very good position. You, know, you had a uniform, you got to travel. Um, it was a fairly well-paying job compared to some other jobs that were around. And so at the end of the line, which Vancouver was, you then had that kind of layover, two days, three days, four days, as you changed out the trains. And I'm pretty sure that's why uh, Hogan's Alley was where it was. If you go very far back, one of the earliest uh, black institutions in that area was the Porter's Quarters. It was kind of a lounge for porters. So you had this kind of mix of sort of transient folks coming in for a few days and stuff like that, and then you had the population that was already here. You also had the vaudeville circuits that came in, and the trains played an important role in that because you moved your vaudeville act by train, and all of the circuits came up to Vancouver. And so a lot of black performers came up into Vancouver. Um, some of them stayed, and others, like the Hendricks family, once the troupe went bust in Seattle, well, they ended up hearing about jobs in Vancouver, so that's why they ended up coming up to Vancouver. Even in the 1930s and 1940s, I mean, we were a major, major, major city, and our nightclubs brought everyone up here. And so we talk about it today as a well-known place and, and sort of the the cliche, Hollywood North. Well, we were Hollywood North before that was even an idea. So that whole entertainment history plays a huge, huge, huge role in the development of the city. This is a holding copyright recorded on September the 26th, 1960. Words and music by the Crump Twins, Robert P. and Ronald J., 856 East Cordova Street, Vancouver, B.C. <laughs> My family were entertainers pretty well.
We were born in Edmonton, Alberta, and came here. We were young. Same with Jim Hendricks there. We knew him when he was, uh, we, 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 we were all coming up. And then that's when we moved to Hogan's Alley. It was a cosmopolitan area. And, we, and there was a school there called Strathcona School. It was on the edge of Chinatown. Our church was there too. It was, it was called the Fountain Chapel Church. Now Jackson and Pryor there. We, we went, to, went, to, went to Sunday school and to church there every, every Sunday. Our childhood was, was, was absolutely perfect. Absolutely perfect, but it was a good area then. It would have been a good area now if it, if it hadn't uprooted the, the community. You know, you are what your parents are, you know, and they, they sang and they danced. And we picked, 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 picked it up. And then my, then my, one of my sisters there, she was a singer too. Her name was Honey Carlisle, that was what she called herself. And then we, we, we did all the hospitals, the community centers and all that there. So we, we, worked, we worked with them. We worked, they worked at, at the P&E for two, four or five years straight on the, on the side show there. And it started with Harlem, the Royal, the Royal Canadian Carnivals. We did Dumptown, the Cave, the Palomar, the Hardy Club, and all the places like locally. And then we was down on Gramble Street there, where we, where we met Louis Armstrong, and we had twins, we drew, we drew his attention. And so he said, what are you guys doing on Saturday afternoon? Said, well, we said nothing. So we ran home and told my mom, my mom, Louis Armstrong wants to come down to see a show on Saturday afternoon for the matinee. And his big thing is that the, 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 the Crumb Twins we are here because they were outstanding. And the joke is outstanding where? Outstanding on, uh, 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 on Granville Street. <laughs> For the women in the community, the centralized job option was the ownership of these chicken houses or speakeasies where you could go drink illegally during prohibition in the 30s. The most famous would have been Vi's Chicken and Steaks and attracted some very famous, famous customers over the years. Sammy Davis Jr. would come with his dad and his uncle. He was still young at that time and they performed as a trio. The, the Mills Brothers, Duke Ellington, Nat King Cole, Louis Armstrong, and whoever was with his crew uh, at the time, Lena Horn. Uh, would come to the uh, restaurant when she was in town. Mitzi Gaynor, Evan Kemp. Uh, they were entertainers from uh, uh, different backgrounds. Whoever came through the door, it was it was they, they were more they were more than welcome and and treated like they were special guests. They started the restaurant in 1948. My grandfather was the greeter, and my grandmother did all the work. She, uh, she cooked and, and, and ran the whole show. So it closed at 4 a.m. So when entertainers would come to Vancouver, when their show was over, midnight, they would venture to the restaurant. And when my grandmother had time off, she would go to places like the Palomar and the Cave and Izzy's. And these were all your top-notch places in Vancouver. And, and I remember when we would enter the cave, whoever was at the door would say, bye. I'd love to see it, love to see it. Have a table for you. And we would end up winding through tables to the front, right at the front of the stage. <laughs> it was kind of neat.
Hogan's Alley was a real political football through the, the 30s right up into the 60s. It was a working class immigrant enclave, that's what it was, but, but a poor neighborhood always. And so it had all sorts of social ills and you know, people had different perspectives on how to deal with that. And the vision of urban renewal is the one that kind of won out. Vancouver has accepted the challenge, knowing that to build a better city requires only the industry and ingenuity of man. Well, urban renewal usually refers to the idea of just clear-cutting uh, existing neighborhoods, and so it's really a euphemism for slum clearance. It's what they did in the States to build the projects. So they went from kind of organic freehold a jumble of houses uh, to rationalizing them into these tower blocks. And the idea was this would be better for everybody, and it was far, far worse. And their justification for it was they emphasized the squalor of the neighborhood, and the term of the day was blight. Blight is death to a city. Most of Vancouver is kept strong and healthy through the normal process of land and building renewal. But in areas such as this, nothing happens except dilapidation and decay gets worse each year. Property values fall, and blight is the result. One of the city's building inspectors, Arthur Julius Burr, talked about blighted neighborhoods, but then he talked about it in the form of a disease in terms of if you didn't cure the blight in one spot, it would spread. And he has a phrase, I don't think he used the word tentacles, but it's kind of, it spreads like mold across the city, and suddenly you've got a huge problem on your hands. So it was kind of pitched in a sense that if we don't stop it now, we're in trouble for the future. From Main Street to Victoria Drive, from the harbor, to the edge of the False Creek Basin where the railway tracks are. That's what they were gonna take out to cure the city of its blight. And so at the same time as they're planning the urban renewal district, and you look at the drawings, you see these vast array of public housing projects and sweeping streets that ignore a grid, and then you see the 12-lane freeway going right through the project. You know, it, it, it sounds like a conspiracy theory or something, but it, it wasn't. What it was was the arrival of car culture. We have become the nation on wheels, with more motorized mobility than ever dreamed of before. That idea that people would work in the city and live in the suburbs, well, if they're going to do that, they need to get there through a freeway system if they're going to get there fast. We're going to put a freeway in. Where do we put the freeway in? Well, we're not going to put it through a community that has power and will oppose us. We'll put it through a community that's regarded as weak and that we can bully. And that's basically why every you know, major city in North America has a black community that had a freeway run through it or run over top of it and then has these project tower blocks there. And all that is exactly what happened in Vancouver. 